Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for finding the Toronto Today podcast right here for Tuesday, January the 11th. Well, um, a little bit of a surprise, I think. I think most people think that there's an announcement about schools before schools reopen. Like it's an affirmation. They're supposed to open next Monday anyway, but you don't expect an announcement on the prior Monday. I get the skepticism. I get the idea of people using the oft-used phrase gaslighting. I understand. I do. Um, Got enough teachers that are friends, and uh, I'm a massive advocate for education and public education. But I wonder whether or not we're being a bit premature in guessing or deciding or judging and concluding that schools are going to go a certain way. So we talk about that. We talk about that on the show and the shift in direction that we all are going to have to have at some point in time to move it along in, in a time when our hospitals aren't necessarily in crisis. Lots coming up on the Toronto Today podcast. Glad you could join us. Please feel free to tell a friend, download us, uh, subscribe as well. Toronto Today starts now. Let me start here. Uh, One, we'll get to something interesting in a little bit that uh, Dr. Isaac Bogus said on uh, on Global News Morning yesterday with uh, Anthony Robart, our friend, who we're going to talk to on the show pretty regularly and later on in the week. Um, But Dr. Isaac Bogus made uh, a comment about uh, possibly rehiring healthcare staff that were fired because of the vaccine mandate for healthcare workers. Um, there's a staff shortage right now. We know that this is true. It's a, it's a, there's a lot you can argue about in this day and age, but this is something you can't. There's less staff. Um, and the question is, to what extent bringing um, unvaccinated or even partially vaccinated workers back, what would that do to ease up on the pressure that the healthcare industry is feeling right now? I want to get to that clip in a little bit because I think it's really, really interesting. And whether that's the case, obviously, the TTC has let go workers. City of Toronto has let go workers. Um, Metrolinx has let go workers. We've got tons of go trains. I know there's less people riding on the go. I know that. But um, to lose like 15 to 20 percent of routes, which was the case yesterday, as documented in the afternoon, I was actually in the car yesterday going somewhere besides uh here and back and uh, and heard that was the the numbers around 18 percent of uh, go tra- go transit routes routes in Ontario uh, in in the GTA were uh, were shelved because of staffing issues and for no other reason so we'll get there in a little bit I want to play that bogosh clip in a bit um, but let me start here with schools this is going to be really really intriguing isn't it Robert Benzie of the Toronto Star was the first to report it and by the way it was so enjoyable to watch everybody else confirm Robert Benzie's confirmation <laughs> like it's got there's a window of time and you okay and we get it and and but he was first so it's great that's awesome that you were ninth but he was first um, Ontario schools are going to reopen for in-person learning on the 17th of January that's Monday. That was the plan that they're going to stick to the plan. Two things out of the gate. I want you to think about this. And you can text me, by the way, as always, your comments on the show, 289 and our topics, 289-975-1640. 289-975-1640. Always appreciate your interaction. The two things that occurred to me right away when I saw this, I'm sitting down having a cocktail watching Georgia and Alabama. I'm like, this is going to be a fun night. I, I had a long nap. I planned to be up late watching the college football national championship and Georgia won first time, first time in 40 years um, since Herschel Walker was there. It's incredible. So um, 
That said, last night we see that this news gets broken and uh, in the Toronto Star and schools are going to come back. And my first thought was, you dangle this carrot in front of parents after getting just hit by a truck last Monday, even though it wasn't a shock. Devastating news is devastating news. It doesn't have to be surprising. It doesn't have to floor you. But when you're hopeful and hopeful, the hope was created in part by uh, what we did at Christmas, thinking, OK, all right, we'll, we'll play your game. We'll we'll step up as we often do as citizens and we'll do the right thing and we'll uh, help protect uh, the healthcare industry, which is what we're doing. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But we will step up in case we run out of, again, with a staffing shortage, it's vital to do so, in case we run out of hospital beds and intensive care unit beds, we'll, we'll shave down our contacts. We won't go here. We won't go there. We won't do this. We won't do that. Christmas will be a little smaller. New Year's will be notably smaller. Maybe you're having another couple over like we did that is that is boosted and and you're happy to see them and you don't even give it a second thought. Maybe you did something bigger than that. Again, one size fits all um, recommendations. Um, they're ridiculous. They're ridiculous. And uh, as I pointed out, should should my mom and dad be all over the place in their mid seventies? No. Should um, twenty year olds come back from college who are double vaccinated? Let's say. And should they not see friends that they haven't seen in ages? That's that's one of the nice rituals of coming back after a long hell. We all had a long fall, okay? Um, and co- to have the college experience kind of ripped from you and make no mistake, even though they're in residence, it's not a normal year when your classes are on Zoom and all that. When you tell college kids, don't gather, don't get together. When you get um, a uh, person, so many words I could use, like uh, Colin Furness uh, telling you basically you're an a-hole if you go to a restaurant. W- what when you when you're 20 w- when you're when you're with your kids um, and you're voting for schools to close again the the temerity the arrogance the cruelty to say that uh, publicly and think that that's good think that you're doing a public service is pretty terrible stuff. It's pretty awful messaging. We talked about it on the show yesterday how fear and scaring people and shaming people, it's only going to make people run the other way. It only is after 22 months. So when we do all those things, we think are, you know, we're opening the door potentially for schools to work. That's what we're doing. That's what the hope is, is that there's a crack in the, in the seams that could let schools work. And if you pull this from parents after last night and the reaction that I saw to it, and you probably saw it to it. I don't even know what to say. I don't know. What, <laughs> like, what's the low point of, of parents mentally who are just strapped by this? Um, I don't have a clue how they would uh, how they would react. And it's incumbent. I know how much bad faith is there amongst uh, teachers. A great reality show, by the way, would be teachers. Um, let's find, you know how the, the big brother whatnot, or they, they used to do that on MTV's The Real World. I would watch that when I was like in uh, in university uh, in like 1991. And uh, it, it, let's put six teachers in, into a house that really want to teach, that are vaccinated, they're boosted, they're confident, they want to be back in front of their classrooms. They don't, they don't have a, you know, they'll vote in June. Oh, they'll do that. But they just want to be in the class. And let's find six that want to complain and bitch and get hysterical and get shrill and say no 
and and everything is unsafe this, unsafe that, even though they're boosted and they're younger and they're healthy. And let's put six of those teachers in with the other six teachers. Let's see how everybody gets along uh, for a little bit, because I know this and you probably do, too. There's a lot of there's there's equal numbers. I wouldn't even say there's equal numbers of both, but there's numbers of both. Let's put it that way. So when everybody goes back on Monday, two things absolutely need to happen. Teachers need to be protected. Now, um, the province making it safe and uh, teachers feeling it safe, you get, I think we all get this. Those are going to be two different things. Those are going to be two different things. And I cannot make you feel safe if you're choosing not to. And uh, I'm not saying they're, in essence, conscientious objectors. But there, there is a model that the province can utilize to make things safer for, pe- for teachers going into the classroom. But I cannot make you feel safe. Eric wrote to me on Twitter last night. Most teachers, including the one I'm married to, want to be back in the classroom because they know it's the best thing for their kids. They will willingly take the risk at the same time working for a government that doesn't respect them. And that's what makes them great. Yeah, feel that way? Totally, yes. But to obfuscate and uh, and suggest that you don't feel safe or that you're worried about kids being safe or that this is about hospital capacity, no. No, it's not your job to worry about hospital capacity. Your job's to teach, and 90% of teachers, if boosted, want to be in that classroom. And with N95 masks being provided, listen, I'll be the first person Monday the very first human being to take the province to town. You know that that's true. You know I will go at Stephen Lecce and say, this wasn't done properly. Premier Ford, this was not done properly. But I can't make teachers feel safe. And neither can they. And neither can they. Here's another teacher. And by the way, I'll read some teachers that are concerned in a couple minutes. I'm not just I'm not just saying that they're all, uh, you know, uh, playing the uh, scared doe in the wilderness. Not saying that, but another uh, gentleman writes me who lists his, uh, in his uh, Twitter bio as teacher, father, husband. I'm honestly confused by the fear expressed by teachers. I will admit I was scared for my own health last spring during Alpha. Oh my God. Yeah, I remember that. I remember March and April. We were. But since then, I've been vaccinated, now boosted, and Omicron is milder. Want to fight? It is. The situation is so much better. And he's right. And he's right about that. So um, Robert Benzie's tweet, all Ontario school children will return to in-classroom learning on schedule next Monday. Premier Doug Ford said last week the January 17th date for schools reopening was the goal. Public health officials have signed off on the decision. Look, um, I know it hasn't been easy. I know teachers have been uh, have had their noses rubbed in the dirt at times by this government. I also know that uh, union leadership at times has made things difficult for the rank and file. That uh, you wanted to work with um, vaccinated colleagues, and there was a little bit of a slow roll this summer when union leaders—I'll name them—I I don't have a problem with these. I don't have a problem with naming them, and I don't have a problem with them as human beings. But when the Sam Hammonds and the uh, Harvey Bischoffs were saying, "Oh no, Greg," and, and I absolutely remember the interviews. I wish I could play the tape for you. When they're telling me, oh, no, vaccination, that's a personal health decision, Greg. No, no, we're we not, not going to get involved in that. Advocate for it. Sell it. 
uh, ask, you know, t- say it's it's essential the teachers get that. None of that was happening before maybe the middle of August, the middle of August. I kind of keep track of this stuff. I know that that's true. OK, so uh, when I think about the conversations last night as well, I certainly look and I say, we've got to take the temperature down here. And most teachers got it. Most teachers understand that, uh, look, fear is not going to motivate you to do anything. Fear and panic combined are going to make you, uh, uh, you know, are going to scar you. Absolutely, they are. But uh, all I can tell you is we can't play this game, okay? If schools are closed, some parents can't work. The economy grinds to a halt. But, Greg, we can't pick the economy over people's lives. Man, the economy is people's lives. People comprise the economy. People who matter. There's cost-benefit stuff. There's going to be measured risk. All of that's true. I know it's complicated. I know it's stressful. I know it's nuanced. It's got a lot of layers to it. But our kids aren't okay, and teachers haven't gotten a fair shake from the province. Checkmark, checkmark. Both are true. Can we keep the temperature moderate until next week reveals itself? Okay? We'll turn the heat up on the province. We'll help teachers get what you need to be safe. I cannot make you feel safe. That is a completely different story. The latter is your job. To make you be safe, that's the government's. 100%. And it's for school boards and unions to advocate for that as well and push hard over the next six days. It is your job to feel safe. It is your job to do your job just like it's mine and just like it's that of an Amazon uh, you know, delivery worker and just like it's that of an essential worker in a warehouse and somebody in an auto body shop and the same as it is for someone who's going to hopefully cut my hair at 11 o'clock this morning. It's all raggy. It's an interesting thing that Dr. Isaac Bogush brought up yesterday about potentially hiring back. I mean, it's hard to find a a political or non-political uh, topic that people don't align on either side of a fence, and we're going to get to education in a second, um, but suggesting that hiring people back in the healthcare industry who have been shelved, either fired, either fired or or um, suspended, um, who wouldn't get fully vaccinated to um, full you know full volition, is an interesting concept. It's a conversation, at least. You can't just put up your hand and say, let's not talk about this stuff. By the way, um, a lot of concern about education is the five-day isolation period. And there were new studies over the weekend that documented that there still is some spread for people with Omicron on that sixth day. But so much of this is about personal um, care with those around you and risk mitigating. We proved we were pretty good at that. A lot of people said the sky was going to fall in on all of us, including schools, in August, September, October, and November. We were kind of rolling along, and most of us have gotten our lives back. And I don't know how you wouldn't call school a win in September, October, November. Dr. Scott Gottlieb on CBS's uh, morning show yesterday said this, and I think it holds true for all of us. Listen to what he said about, A, who's driving the pandemic, and B, what to do on that sixth day after you've potentially had Omicron. 
they're not driving the pandemic. What's driving the pandemic right now is the fact that we're probably only diagnosing somewhere between one in five and one in 10 actual infections. And there's a lot of people walking around with mild illness or asymptomatic infection who don't know it, who are spreading it. Mm -hmm. So if you start from that premise, and if CDC was sort of upfront about that premise, what it really tells you is that if you're, so you're someone who's isolated for five days and on day six, you're going to go back to work, you need to be mindful of what the setting is that you're reintroducing yourself into. Are you taking care of people who are vulnerable at home? Are you going into a healthcare setting or another setting where there's vulnerable people? And if you are, you need to be more vigilant. Yeah, all that's true. All that's true. And uh, whether it's masking, whether it's distancing, whether it's whatever, I know people say, well, we can't have all these people coming back to school on that sixth day if they're still spreading. Well, we can if they're being cautious. No one's jumping on a cruise ship uh, on day six. No one's having a 20 person party on day six uh, after they, they've shown they, they're negative. And even if they're still spreading the virus again, we did all this. I know it's more transmissible now, but we did all this in the fall. Um, so we know how to do it. There has to be an element of personal accountability and responsibility for those uh, around you. This is a little like an athlete. Like if you've had an injury or a surgery is like you got to walk before you can run. You can't get all excited and think, well, I can do everything I used to do before. No, as you come along and, and, and rehab yourself back, you'll find that you will be able to. But that's what those first few days will be like. A lot of people are walking around. Yeah, with mild symptoms right now. I'm sorry. That's the word that's being used. Caroline Alfonso uh, is the uh, excellent education reporter uh, for the Globe and Mail, and uh, I know she'll have a, a reaction to the news and the potential that uh, kids are going back to school in high school and elementary school settings as of next Monday. Caroline, it's always great to have you on our show. Thanks for getting up early. We appreciate it. Hi, Greg. I'm up early these days. <laughs> it's your only peace and it's your only peace and quiet, and I'm interrupting it. Sorry about that. No, it really is, but no, you're not interrupting it. Nice to be here. Do you see this as you've watched this before, and and you've covered this beat so often and so vigorously? Uh, was this a trial balloon pushed up there by the Ford government, or there's just no way they could pull uh, the rug out on Friday and say, we spoke too soon. It has happened before. I find it really hard to believe there's any patience for it happening now. It, is, it has happened before. I mean, it just happened a couple of weeks back when uh, Karen Moore, the chief medical officer of health, told us that uh, schools would reopen in two days. And then um, the premier came out and told us that, nope, Kids are going to be learning online for at least till January, until January 17th, or at least till January 17th. I think, you know, people are skeptical. Um, uh, hopefully, there's a lot of families that are hoping that it's going to happen on Monday, that their kids can return to the classroom, and the province is not going to change its mind in four days again. Um, and a lot of families are nervous about going back to school, about putting their children or teachers, uh, educators in those situations again, because we know Omicron spreads more easily. And, you know, when you have these little bodies in the class that all want to hang out together and don't know how to keep their distance or don't want to keep their distance. Uh, we just don't know what is going to happen in schools when it reopens. I don't, the teachers that are contacting me and I'm sure you're uh, you, you've got a real finger on the pulse for the, the teaching community, the teachers that are contacting me are telling me 
Um, they're, uh, th- it's certainly a wait-and-see approach. They're hopeful, but they don't want to be too negative. They don't want their colleagues to be too negative. This is a highly politicized mm-hmm. um, time, and this is a highly politicized issue long before the pandemic between this current government and teachers, unions, boards, and individual teachers. You and I have talked about this countless times, but I, I feel like most teachers I hear from, and I want to gauge it from you, are are hopeful are just hopeful because I think it's the media's job. It's our job to hold the province's feet to the fire if they didn't and don't provide the safeguards that teachers need to be safe Monday morning. The teachers that I've spoken with want to go back to school. They 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 know that that face to face learning that happens in classrooms is best for kids, and that's how they were trained to be teachers. They weren't trained in an online environment. They want to go back to school. They're nervous about what will happen when they go back to school. If you don't want to test positive for COVID-19, they don't know what's going to happen. And if we look at places like uh, right now, if we look at places like Alberta and Saskatchewan that have reopened schools, Alberta, their kids returned to classrooms yesterday. We already saw on the first day of school huge, I mean, some staff shortages. You know, Mm -hmm. they had to close a couple of classrooms and move kids online because people were sick and isolating. And is that going to play out in Ontario when schools reopen on Monday? Probably, Greg. We're probably going to see, you know, operational challenges right off the mm-hmm. hopper. Like kids are, go- you know, supply teachers are going to be called upon. There's going to be administrators who are going to have to fill in when they can't find supply teachers or specialty te- specialized teachers who are going to have to come into classrooms. There's going to be challenges when schools reopen next week Um, and how that, you know, it's going to be a bumpy road. It definitely is going to be a bumpy road for kids in schools. Caroline Alfonso, our guest, uh, Global News Radio 640 Toronto on Toronto Today uh, on this uh, Tuesday morning. I I feel like uh, boards are probably best and maybe more inclined to go for high school, to go back to the quadmaster system. Um, There was an element of it that worked last year. None of this is ideal, and it surely isn't. Um, But online quadmasters are even worse than in-person quadmasters. I can attest to that from my own home. But it it keeps high school cafeterias closed. Um, it, uh, it, it means kids are coming home for lunch or going out for lunch. And I know, yeah, who wants to walk to pizza pizza when it's minus 21 out? I gotcha. But nonetheless, it's, it's that safeguard that it just allows for a little more risk mitigation. Do you think all high schools will potentially be quadmesters in the province? I don't think so. I think, you know, Mm -hmm. the plan was to move to a semester program and I think they're going to stick with that. I think, um, Nobody, I mean, I'm, you have kids in high school, Greg, and I don't think anybody liked that quadmester program. No. I, teachers didn't like it. It was long, long sessions, um, and students didn't like it. And there was a real, real um, need to change it, and boards moved in that direction. A lot of high school students are vaccinated. Um, whether school boards will start collecting data on um, who is vaccinated and who's not. That'll be interesting because that will determine sort of dismissal of cohorts and things like that. So, you know, I don't foresee them going back into a quadmester model just because there was so much dislike of that. And, you know, high schools just sort of need to move forward because Mm -hmm. so many kids have been vaccinated there. And there are five. I know uh, 
uh, Mara Stiles uh, mentioned it yesterday uh, that the rate right now five to eleven. I, I think it's province wide, and it certainly varies from region to region, city to city. Is around half. I think her number was forty eight percent. But that documents that, uh, and you and I have talked about why probably a mandate w- a wouldn't have been terribly effective, and b might have been the holy war of holy wars for education is is parents being forced forced to uh, vaccinate a a healthy five or six year old when they want some real world data to flesh it out and they may not feel that um, that it's harmful. That's probably coming. It's probably coming. But that tells me right there that with only half of five to 11s vaccinated, that um, that would have been a bridge too far for a lot of parents. I do wonder what is the sort of breaking point where we get to that point where we do mandate vaccines in mm-hmm. schools. Ontario has, you know, mandated a whole host of vaccines to uh, to enroll in schools. So I just, I wonder at what point in this where we're seeing ongoing disruptions, where kids are sort of going between online learning and in-person learning, um, at what point does government say, okay, we'll do it? There's a real hesitancy to do it, even though there have been calls from you know, doctors and teachers and school boards to do this, um, there is a real hesitancy to do it. So I just, I don't know at what point they do it. I My kids, you know, play hockey, Greg, mm-hmm. and in the older divisions before the season was called, paused again, they mandated vaccines for kids, right? You had to be vaccinated uh, if you're 12 and up to play hockey. So that happened and parents sort of, did it. And so I just wonder when it's going to happen in schools, if it's going to happen in schools. Yeah. And and I, I, I don't know. Did you spot this, too? There was more of an an uptick in vaccinations because parents are like, well, I don't want my kid not playing. I, I don't, I'm not going to have to tell him that he yeah. can't play hockey or soccer. We've got a soccer team with my kid and maybe 14 players and three or four were were sort of late to vaccinations. Again, that's a that's a, their choice. But once they realized that their kid couldn't play indoor soccer, it was like, bam, bam, bam. They all got vaccinated. I think it's going to be trickier in schools to do that yeah. though, because this, you know, soccer and hockey and those, those are sort of private organizations that can control that. Whereas schools, it's a public entity, right? So I, you know, there's a few boards that the province had mandated that um, uh, education workers get tested if they're not vaccinated. The Toronto District School Board was the only board, well, Ottawa as well, but two boards mandated vaccines among their education workers. Nobody else did. And that took so much work. So I, I just mm. I just wonder if it, it's ever going to happen for kids as well. Last thing, it's kind of a question that, that involves um, some of the politic- uh, politicization of this. But I would ask if you think this I haven't heard a specific reaction and maybe we're waiting for an official announcement to get to gauge where Andrea Horvath's at or Stephen Del Duca's at. But you've seen so much of the of the tension south of the border is about, you know, Republicans are open and the Democrats say, well, you know, are our kids safe? And if the Democrats close schools, there have been so many uh, issues of, you know, kids eating lunch outside and five-year-olds being masked. And there's a lot of moms who said, I'd never consider voting Republican, but I am now because that's not how hands off my kids. And we've got such a different scenario here because we have a government that, compared to the other two parties, that does lean more right and they've been very, you know, aggressive about closing schools quickly. And I, it, it, it puts the opposition parties and the education critics, doesn't it, in a tough position. They say they want safe schools, but you haven't heard from them that they demand that they be open. So I think the reaction is going to be really interesting. 
I think today is going to be an interesting day to see how this all plays out, or maybe this week. We haven't heard much. They want safe schools. They've asked for certain things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of those things are coming. You know, the government has said that uh, N95 masks will be distributed to education workers. I mean, perhaps, you know, the two weeks of the holiday break would have been a time to sort of procure those and distribute them out to school school boards so that it would be in place for Monday morning. Um, so things like that are being rolled out. But we really haven't heard as much uh, from the NDP or the Liberal Party as just sort of what are some more steps that they want in place? Because I don't think we're going to get smaller class sizes. No. I think that, that ship has kind of sailed right now. Uh, perhaps, you know, after the election, this will be a bargaining issue that comes up because teacher contracts will be up then, Greg, just in case you were wondering. Oh, how, how, what a coincidence. Yeah. Yep. So that will happen. <laughs> um, and so I don't know what what more can be done right now. I mean, there, yeah. there are issues of ventilation. There are masking issues. Those things need to be taken care of so that, you know, teachers and kids are safer in schools. That's what we all want. We want them to be safer in schools. And so I would like to hear more from those parties as to what they want that could help in addition to what's in place. Mm. Thank you so much for the time. We'll be reading you in the Globe and Mail. Uh, nobody better to follow on this beat. Thank you very much, Caroline. Appreciate it as always. Thanks, Greg. Caroline Alfonso from uh, the Globe and Mail. Listen, yeah, like I, I read this uh, from Karen Brown, who we've chatted with before, who's the uh, Elementary Teachers Federation president last night. And she writes, still waiting for a long-term plan for a safe return to sustainable in-person learning for staff and students. Parents need to be asking questions. And well, look, I'm going to defend the tweet. Uh, That's right. We do need to be asking questions, but we need a short term plan. Okay, the long term involves class sizes and online learning and prep time and getting extracurriculars back and mass soft kids and all that stuff in the fall. Absolutely. That's true. You're not getting that by next Monday. Like we get that right. This is about the short term safety as we've got a highly transmissible, yet less severe variant circulating through. So what about isolation time? What about that with the PPE? And it was wrong from the get-go. The teachers weren't able to choose their own PPE and were wearing thin blue surgical masks. We've talked about that countless times on this particular show and advocated the teachers get the choice and they get better uh, and, and get better PPE. Of course we have. But again, The government can't make teachers psychologically feel safe. They can't. And we know that there's people either who don't want to go back to work for their own reasons and that want a little chaos and disorder in the water, okay, in the water supply. When it comes to the province, when it comes to making uh, uh, this government wear it for education, and they're going to have to put that aside. And that stuff's got to get called out the same way, the same way as if the province doesn't provide what it needs to for students on Monday. The same issue. We, we got to be even keel about this and fair minded about this. I got no time. And you probably don't either for partisan politics when it comes to stuff like this. Vote in June. Do what you got to do. Not next Monday. Not next Tuesday. Enough's enough. Yeah, coldest day of the year, and you think about getting dressed, going to school, heading out. Uh, my kid would be walking to the bus. Uh, he's only got like a seven, eight-minute bus ride because the, the high school where he is, 10th grade, is right around the corner. Uh, but better that he do that than be at home. Um, online learning does uh, – although 
I wouldn't say he's thriving. I don't think it's dinging him like it is some kids, but it is hitting some kids and some families and some households harder than others. So it's a weird thing when I advocate people say, oh, you just want your kids back. No, they're more okay than other parents I talk to, and especially younger kids. You heard Dave just mention he's got a daughter in uh, in senior kindergarten. That's a real tender age to be in front of a screen uh, seven hours a day. And we can kick around terms, um, you know, of of short term, long term uh, concern for these kids, but uh, it's a relief, a relief to fathom the idea that they're all going to be back in person on Monday. We've got to make this work. Again, we've got to give teachers what they need to be safe, and teachers have to get it to the point where they feel safe and to do their jobs to the best of their ability. Um, like the stars they are. We believe in them. Uh, Todd Cunningham's an assistant professor at uh, OISE at uh, the University of Toronto, the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. He's kind enough to join me now. Todd, thanks for getting up early for our show and our audience. It's great to have you on. No problem. Good morning. So a lot of your research has dealt with um, kids at times with learning difficulties. It's a, again, online learning is not sort of like, well, how is online learning for kids? There's a lot of different levels, as I just documented, how we can split that out via age and, and also uh, via, you know, uh, certain academic skills that they came into online learning with. Very much so. Like when you think about online learning, um, you know, you have to be highly motivated, organized, have good attention to be able to sit there and can continue to engage in that learning environment for the six hours um, a, a day. And what the research continues to show is those students who either don't have um, those abilities or who don't have access, you know, we make this assumption that all students have really good high-speed internet going into their houses. There's a lot of families that don't have that. And so there's a lot of disruptions in their actual day-to-day -day online learning experience because they don't have the internet. Or there's places that just don't have all the devices you know if you have five six kids and you don't have all the devices there or the room to be able to have that um have them all independently working there's a lot of distraction than hearing your peers or your um mm -hmm. your siblings talking so so there's a lot of the factors that kind of go into this and i think our our real concern and and the, what the literature is showing is there is continuously a growing divide between those who have the abilities, who have the access and those supports to do good online learning versus those who don't. And um, we're seeing real skill slippage in those who don't have that access, um, supports and um, and ability. I'm glad you said that because I think it's it's obviously it was never meant to be uh, one size fits all. Um, and when people say, well, do kids adjust to online learning? Well, we're talking when we go JK all the way up to grade 12, there's such a massive distinction in cognitive development, in the ability to focus. And look at even how our society's changed even as adults where, you know, you'd get home from the day and uh, my parents would, were both teachers. They'd get home and maybe have a cup of coffee, maybe the TV's on, but they wouldn't have their nose into their phones or they wouldn't be distracted by eight other things at home. Like it's the distraction thing as much as you and me probably take pride in our jobs and we can be easily distracted by an email that comes in or mm -hmm. something else uh, to, to throw us off track when we're trying to get something done. Yeah, and the other thing is, you know, with a lot of our um, children and youth these days, because their entertainment is also through the screen, they're not just spending the seven hours of, um, on in front of the screen for school, they're now also spending it for all their entertainment time. And so one thing that parents really need to do is kind of go, hey, you know, at the end of this day, we as a family, we need to get outside, we need to walk around, we need to do other activities that is not involving a screen at all, so that there is that balance between kind of healthy, uh, 
um, activities versus that screen time. Especially within our youth, we see um, our, our teenagers in particularly, you know, their social connection is so much through social media um, yeah. at, at this point. Um, and they're just drawn to it. The sleep habits are just all, all over the place. Kids staying up to 2, 3 o'clock in the, in the morning and having to wake up to be in online learning. And they're clocking in around 14, 18 hours of actually screen time a day, which is um, it's going to have a real impact on their ability to develop those skills and engage in the learning process. Todd Cunningham's our guest. He's a uh, professor at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education on Global News Radio 640 Toronto and Toronto Today. Is there a baseline age, uh, Todd, where you'd go, I I just wouldn't even recommend this for online learning? Maybe there are some benefits, certainly in the later high school years. There's maybe even benefits for maybe grade sevens and eights. Do you look and say, I don't think anything can be accomplished uh, below this age group? Uh, no, I, I think the, the challenge is, is again, it comes back to what is the supports within the household. So even if you a kindergarten student, if you had an online learning platform that provided a parent who was able to engage with their kid all day long to be able to have some really good, effective activities to be able to help educate their child, then that's a good use of online learning. But that requires a highly motivated parent who is available to their child child to be able to um, to do that. If it is the kindergarten student sitting in front of a computer for seven hours a day, well, that's not going to happen. You're going to get like five minutes of compliance and they're probably going to be moving on to um, something something else. So again, it comes back to the environment to be able to support that. You know, the past literature always looked at, you know, um, online learning to be equivalent to in-person learning, but in all those studies, um, families opted in or children opted in. They selected to be in part of those um, online learning environments, and that might be due to the fact that they're, they were more remote um, or there might be health conditions coming in, but there was a higher level of motivation to be part of that online learning environment, and that's what's different now. We're, we've just kind of stuck everybody into that environment, no matter what the circumstances are, and that's having the biggest impact. Um, the other thing that, that online learning does impact is the social connection that students have. You know, so much yeah. of school is seeing your friends, talking to your peers in, in the classroom, actually interacting with your, your teacher, and that is really missing. And so the real loneliness factor that has emerged in our youth um, is, is quite concern, concerning. They might be at home, they might be doing social media, but Texting with someone and actually having a conversation, as you said, on the stairs outside the school is very different types of conversations that are, are taking taking place. Plus, you also indicate that they just don't have safe places necessarily at home to be able to talk. You think of being in an apartment um, downtown and your parents in one room, you're in the next room. You might not feel very comfortable talking about your parents um, to your friends and being able to um, kind of commiserate with with each yeah. other. And so that is also having a huge impact on the uh, mental health um, of our youth. It's a, yeah, it's it's learning loss and, and it's a loss of independence that 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 you brought up is really important that I think we haven't thought about. It. And then those of us lucky enough to give our kids their own space. Uh, that's just not the case in many, many households. I want to ask because I know you, uh, you you've had some focus in your uh, studies on text to speech. And I think about that with a younger kid and, and I've got a 15 year old, 13 year old. But when kids are learning to read or kids are get, getting to the point to form words. 
online is incredibly, incredibly difficult. They, they need to see teachers' lips moving. This gets us to the masks as well, and I understand that there's a safety component to this, but in a perfect scenario, these things are gone quickly because I've heard from so many parents who either have, have children that don't hear particularly well or they need to see faces for facial recognition, and, and there's learning loss there. Even if they're in the classroom, not being able to see their teacher form the words is hurting them. Yeah, especially for our young students, kindergarten to grade two, where we're knowing the foundational literacy skills are are developing, um, and we have this critical window there. Mm-hmm. The text to speak, the computer reading out loud is not teaching students how to read. You know, it is um, a band-aid solution to try and get some text out there. Read the foundation of reading is learning the sounds of letter correspondence and how to decode those words, and that is and. And that takes a lot of practice, and it takes a, a, a gu- someone guiding you through um, through repetition to be able to develop that. A computer reading out loud does not um, facilitate that, as well as those students who do have some language processing challenges who do need to see the formation of the lips to be able to see how to produce those sounds. Having those masks on is going to interrupt um, that, though that impact hasn't been as well established, um, but... There are definitely some students it is um, uh, affecting. Overall, we need to get back to looking at how do we get um, students into, especially those vulnerable students, how do we get them um, in front of those teachers in a way that is really meaningful? Or even post um, the online learning, how do we be able to screen for those students using the really sophisticated technology that we have in screening? Um, you know, teachers can quickly within um, two to five minutes per student be able to identify where are their learning, um, where is their literacy development at this point, and then be able to target those lower students so that we can put our, um, differentiate our, our time and effort to bring those students back up. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so vital. Uh, Todd Cunningham from uh, Oise, thank you so much for getting up early. And uh, it's great food for thought for uh, all our listeners. And uh, we need to return to normal as quickly as possible. Thanks for shedding some light on some of these issues. You're very welcome. Have a good day. You got it. I will. Uh, you too. Todd Cunningham uh, from University of Toronto and the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. So over the weekend, um, there was so much stuff um, in terms of new information about COVID, the vaccines and whatnot. Um, there was a sneakily edited clip from uh, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky that was documenting um, that among fully vaccinated patients, um, it, it, 75% of those people within a set amount of time had died with four or more comorbidities. But that was sort of edited sneakily to suggest that that's been the case the whole pandemic. It's not been. Um, and we're having a lot more conversations about, right, with COVID, because of COVID in hospitals. I, I can't find too many doctors that I trust that are logical, that are apolitical about this, that go, well, that's a bad idea. Usually more information is better than less information. I, I don't know who argues this unless you've got something to hide. Uh, but this headline affected people also on the weekend, mentally and emotionally. COVID-19 vaccine may affect menstrual cycle length, a study found. And uh, they noted that people who received one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine during a menstrual cycle had an increase in cycle length compared to those who were unvaccinated. So this this creates some stress. Um, we obviously went through stress with people who were wondering if they should take the vaccine if they were pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant. So uh, it's all been um, it's all been a lot, to put it bluntly, but it's also been something that doesn't just affect you physically, but 
We know how the physical affects the mental. I'm very pleased to welcome on uh, Jillian Einstein. She's a professor in the Department of Psychology at the U of T and uh, from the Canadian Organization of Sex and Gender. Jillian, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for making time for our listeners. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Greg. Thanks for inviting me. A- absolutely. That story about the menstrual cycle, it's it's important to have you know an adult, mature conversation about it. That you know, The women that I know in my life were kind of rattled by that knowledge because there was a lot out there in the mainstream that suggested no, it, it, it won't factor in, but it's uh, it, can, it can be a major stress point for, for people who were hesitant in the first place to take the vaccine and, and rightly did the right thing by getting it. Yeah, well, I'm really glad the story came out. And um, actually, my take home from the story is that it's no problem for women to have the vaccination. Mm-hmm. The, the key finding is that it's, the, it's, a, it's a very modest increase in menstrual cycle length, it's less than a day extra, and it's only significant in women who had two vaccinations within the same month. So that's actually really clear that, you know, most of us don't have a vaccination within the same month. Um, We're trying, you know, everybody's spacing it out. Those Those are the recommendations. And um, I actually think that this article ought to put those concerns that have been out there for a while to rest. It also showed that there was no change in bleeding. So it talked about menses. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no change in the length of time that you're actually bleeding during the menstrual cycle. So it's a very minor effect. It's driven by women who had two vaccinations in one month. And so I'm really hoping that this will put women's concerns to rest, actually. And one of the things that I think that this article pointed out and really should be taken to mean is that we should have looked at this uh, during the trials for the vaccination. One of the things that was really seriously missing from the trials right from the get-go was a disaggregation or a separation of the results in men and the results in women. Yeah. And, you know, this should be done for any kind of clinical trial um, because women's biologies are different than men's, um, not just around the menstrual cycle. Um, So I think that this is a good paper. It's an important paper. I don't think the message is women should be concerned about getting the vaccination. If, if women are at all concerned, it just should be about getting two doses within one month. Yeah, and I think you, you crystallized something that was on my mind, certainly all weekend, and then seeing the coverage of the story is that more information is, is better than less information, and we, we've just we've fallen down a little bit. And the only thing I found that travels faster, especially this particular strain of the virus, the only thing that travels faster is fear. And, uh, and so it's like rumor, gossip, innuendo. It moves often faster than fact. So it's really important to put the context of what they found out here in place, and it's more an assurance than it is some great concern. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I appreciate you covering this particular story, because anybody just looking at the newspaper accounts um, could be concerned. But when you actually look at what the, they very carefully did, they had huge numbers in the study. I think it's a, a well-done study. Um, when you look at what they actually did, honestly, the take-home message is don't worry. 
That's my take-home message. As somebody who studies the menstrual cycle and somebody who's um, actually talked quite a bit with immunologists about this vaccine. Yeah, and there, and I, I think I have this, um, tell me if I don't, I had this relatively uh, accurate, is that I, I think everybody, regardless, and I think there were doctors that certainly differ on, well, they differ right now on schools. They differ right now on on our responsibility to the hospital system. But I, I thought it was universal across the board. There was an assurance and a reassurance constantly for women that wanted to get pregnant and for pregnant women to denote that you are much, much safer and so is the future of your baby if you get vaccinated. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm not an MD, so you can't, mm-hmm. can't take what I say in that way. But certainly... Um, the people I know who got the vaccine when they were pregnant are really happy that they did. Um, and, uh, you know, I think what we've found all along with this pandemic is that you're better off if you get vaccinated than if you don't. You're better off with two vaccinations than mm-hmm. if you don't have them. And you're better off with the booster now with respect to Omicron. So I think that's you know, you just look at the numbers, you look at um, how people are doing hospitalizations, and that includes women, although I'd really love to see the data separated by men and women. And, you know, when this first came out, it looked like men were most affected by the virus, but they look, but that was a Chinese, uh, a number of Chinese studies, and it looked like what was driving that was that men smoke in China much more than women do, and that it was somehow um, actually having uh, affected the lungs by smoking that predisposed men. Uh, now the sex differences are a little less clear, but I would really, I'd, I'd love to see the data, as they say in the field, disaggregated by sex. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. You bring that up because every time, even if I'll look, I'll look, you know, micro in uh, in my area now to check the numbers, and I'll look macro on some of the. The larger countries, even even the ones that that go through big struggles, whether it was Italy at the start or or India about nine months in, and you look for those sort of trends. I was looking for those with men and women, and honestly, Jillian, I never saw a disparity that was more than like fifty three forty seven. Like I never saw anything significant enough. And and some obviously have speculated, and it's not great that this is the case. I'll say that that again, if if people were choosing who was more able to work from home, sometimes that has been women. And so if men are out there, the COVID cases would be more disparate towards men getting it than women getting it. I think that's changed with, with the vaccination process, but that's surely what was, was what I was seeing the first 11, 12 months in. Oh, that's an interesting comment. And I honestly, I hadn't thought about it. <laughs> I don't know if it's right, but I'm not a doctor either. <laughs> no, that's very interesting. I mean, there are some sex differences that we know about that are driven actually by profession. So you could be quite right. So, for example, um, hearing disorders are much more common among men mm-hmm. <clears throat> than women um, because of the jobs that many men have that require working with loud machinery. Um, and so you, I think it's an interesting thought. And when I, when I hear something like that, I immediately think about gender, not whether somebody identifies as a man or a woman, but what are the social expectations that men will do this kind of job and women will do that kind of job, that women will work from home and men won't work from home. So I, I think that's very interesting driver 
as well that we don't always think about. We only usually think about biology, but uh, sometimes it's actually the social circumstances that drive these differences. Um, so I'm really happy that you're you're covering this story. I think you're right. Facts and a clear-eyed view of what was actually shown, what people are studying, what's known. You know, I think that's really important. It's uh, Jillian Einstein. Thank you very much. It's Jillian Einstein, our guest professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Toronto and the Canadian Organization of Sex and Gender. Um, I, I, I'm real curious to get your read on uh, information and trust of the medical community. We've been very, in the media, I think, We've been reliant upon uh, experts, infectious disease specialists. I mentioned Dr. Bogosh earlier on, who's just who plays it up the middle. There's no mistaking that there's a lack of politics. There's an empathy for also the human condition of it, because I think we've kind of turned to me, uh, it, it seems anyway, into a less myopic view of COVID. This is a, a, a tragedy. This is going to be I've said it before. I'm worried that, that it's our next mental health crisis for the next half century is almost a phobia about this or or PTSD for what we've gone through and are still going through. But it's a really interesting it's a really interesting lay of the land to think we've we've relied more on medical experts. But I worry the general public as a whole can take one thing and they're like, well, that doctor didn't get that right. How can I trust medical professionals? And I would go the opposite way and say there's just no there's no fail safe 100 out of 100 where somebody's going to get everything right, especially in the course where so much has changed. Absolutely. I mean, it's a changing field all the time. Each one of these variants is different, and the variants happen on a different background, population background. I mean, now, at least in Canada, most of us are vaccinated. So the new variant is is happening to people who are vaccinated, and we're seeing that there are fewer lung problems, fewer hospitalizations. It seems to be less virulent in the population, even though more contagious. So it's constantly changing. But and I think as a public, we have to have some um, some understanding of the difficulty that professionals have keeping up yes. with this constantly changing playing field. My own feeling is that the medical professions and the public health people have been pretty consistent in what they're saying. You look from country to country. Um, and, and they've been pretty, uh, I would say, on the whole, very responsible. I think where the messages get very garbled are in the governmental pickup of these public health policies and public health and medical messages. And that's where I think the politics come in and the complicated um, figuring out how much can a population take and how much can a population not take? How much shutdown can we take? How much can the economy deal with? You know, um, I think it's in the, in the, in the sphere of the governments and how they've been dealing with the information, but not in the sphere. I think the public health people and the medical people have been honestly pretty consistent in all of this. I think there's, I think so too. And, and listen, I'm so glad you said that. And there's always going to be outliers, but for me, it's a little like parenting. Like you can, yeah, now and then a parent has to raise their voice when they're, their kids are toddlers and they're fighting or they're pulling the cat's tail. You got to pick them up and take them to another room. Like, I don't like using my hands. I don't like raising my voice. That's not a good day. But what I find is if it's a constant din, you got to pick your moments, right? And pick your spots. And I find that there's time to be a little alarmed and concerned. But if we all agree that our level of vaccination has taken us to a level where now we're concerned about the healthcare system a little more than our, our own individual household risk, 
But then we got to say that and and scaring like if if my teen starts driving, Jillian, I can't tell him, hey, be careful out there. I don't want you getting in an accident and getting yourself killed. Here's the stats of kids that have been killed. And if, if you run through a red light, you could get arrested and maybe you won't go to college like that's I got to do better than that as a parent or or I'm losing him. <laughs> but you can't just use scare tactics. No. And I, I do think right now what we have to be so concerned about is our medical system and all the care and the time and the stress yeah. that our medical professionals have been under. You know, I, I, I think people need to be vaccinated to protect the medical system, actually, uh, not just themselves. Um, I think, um, you know, if we have a more historical view toward this, and I was really I was really happy to read an article the other day in the newspaper um, on the history of what was called the Spanish influenza. Yeah. That killed millions of people worldwide and lasted for an incredibly long time. Well, we see that people recovered. The economy recovered. People recovered. Um, people forgot about it. We don't even think about the Spanish influenza anymore. Um, we went right into the Roaring Twenties, right? All our grandparents did that. That's right. So I think <laughs> I think that'll happen here too. I mean, I think right now we're at a very difficult time. I mm. think you know, I'm not a I'm not a uh a psychiatrist, but I think the the global personal weight of what's happening is really difficult to deal with. Mm. Um and all of us are dealing with it and we have to be gentle with each other. Uh but I think this too will pass. Uh, if we act responsibly um, and we shoulder the burden of getting ourselves vaccinated, behaving responsibly, um, yeah, this too shall pass. And I think we have to take a little bit more of a, a long view uh, and an historical view on it. But um, at the same time, I really would like it if women were included more in clinical trials. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. I'd say. And and uh, I've got a listener texting in who notes that I've said before that I'm left-handed on the show, and they just send me... Like, left-handed men have it really rough, Jillian. We die way earlier. So my mortality is always... We, right-handed people live nine years longer than left-handed people. It's not a myth. And well, You know, that's very interesting because <laughs> left-handed people are often excluded, certainly from um, psychology studies that include imaging the brain. So I think you have a point there. Oh, we're the outcasts, and especially with knives and scissors. They stopped making lefty scissors around uh, fourth grade. So, yeah, I've had, I've had some, you know, cuticle mishaps around the house that I, I can't get into uh, too specifically. I loved having you on. I hope we can chat again. Thanks for uh, making time for our show, and, and I, hope we can, uh, I hope we can have another conversation. Well, thank you very much, Greg, for inviting me on this extremely important topic. 100%. Thank you for that. Jillian Einstein, professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Toronto. Um, golf in this city, golf in Toronto, it uh, ends up being a huge story because so many more rounds were played and so many more people picked up the sport in 2020 and 2021 because guess what? A lot of other sports weren't available to them. So we need probably more golf courses publicly in the city. But what if we end up having less and there's less access to them? Uh, Craig Lockery is uh, with Golf Ontario, and he's kind enough to join me now. Maybe you have a different opinion on the NCAA you want to yell at me at. Everybody's been yelling at me this morning. Maybe you feel uh, all those Georgia-Alabama athletes were exploited last night and we should, like, pay them or something. Maybe you do. No, I don't, Greg. I actually, 
I actually went to the U.S. on a golf scholarship, so I am one of those exploited athletes. How did you get over it? Did it take years of therapy and counseling and, you know, all that mental anguish of a, being a scholarship athlete in the NCAA? How did you, how did oh, you cope? Oh, it was, it was terrible. Yeah. Having to play the sport that I loved, you know, so much every day and practice it. Yeah, it was, it was terrible. And golf, you know, for, 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 uh, for, you know, women, it's like, you're not on the chess team exactly. Like it's, uh, you know, I mean, you're not on the football team, but you're not on the chess team either. No, but you, you do have to manage your time as a, <laughs> as a student athlete, right? Yeah, so, of course. Um, and much like your sister, I, you know, I, I think the game has given me much more than I could ever give it back. And, and the college route and the scholarship route was certainly one of them. So you saw and you see the numbers. I'm looking at a couple uh, recent stories about how many more rounds were played in Toronto. And uh, and and we're not even considering the fact that um, uh, shockingly, I know it was something that you felt viscerally. I sure did. Um, five weeks of beautiful weather, many of us being vaccinated. They closed down golf courses for five weeks. I thought, again, it was an abominable decision. And obviously in 2020, we couldn't get out there. And yet massively more amounts of rounds were played. 40,000 more rounds in the city just on their municipal golf courses in a two-year span. Yeah, pretty amazing. Those five courses did almost 200,000 rounds of golf. That's averaging nearly 40,000 rounds of golf, as, as you mentioned, Greg. And yeah, I mean, that's without five weeks of play on top of that. So easily these golf courses could have served, you know, 230,000 rounds if they were to remain open. And golf certainly proved itself as being a safe uh, activity that you could do during the pandemic. And that's, you know, shown in part by the 20 to 30 percent increase in rounds that we saw year over year. So tell me, uh, Craig Lockery is joining us uh, from uh, Golf Ontario. What is the concern? Um, is, is this about real estate similar to the, you know, the story was stories with Glen Abbey that it's that's a more expensive uh, property in Oakville if condominiums and real estate is built? What what should golfers be concerned about with the municipal courses and access to them or them potentially disappearing or getting shaved down a little bit? Yeah. So in, in this report, the review of the city five, you know, the, the ask was, you know, could, could there be other use or alternative uses to these properties other than just golf? And, you know, how we look at it at golf Ontario is that, you know, golf is just part of the overall recreational offering from the city of Toronto, just like you have, you know, rinks, uh, you've got baseball diamonds, soccer pitches, you know, go golf is just one of those. And, and there's only five, there's only five golf courses. And to be perfectly yeah. honest, Greg, there is a, a big shortage of supply of accessible, affordable public golf. And these city five courses are critical to the entry point of the game. What's the uh, what can city councilors do? What can even listeners do to say, well, not only do we want these five golf courses open, but we may need even more space. If this is a game that's growing among a younger demo, and I think it went down, I think participation really dropped among a younger demo. What can people do and what can city councilors do to preserve the courses we have and maybe look into having more of them? Yeah, there's a deputation today at 9 a.m. Uh, with the City of Toronto. And, you know, you can make your voice heard there. If not, at the very least, reach out to your councillor and let them know how important these golf courses are to the community. A lot of them are at, you know, in high priority neighbourhoods. And, um, you know, they just they offered a tremendous opportunity for people to get into the game, all walks of life, young, old. Uh, whatever your demographic background. Here's what I spot too. And, and I think this is a GTA and I love living here because it's very, 
Um, it's a melting pot of cultures. It's very cosmopolitan. It's a world-class city. So even if I live out in the suburbs, I see that. And what I see on golf courses is a real changing of the guard. Um, it's less male. It's less white. It's a lot more diverse than it used to be. And it is far from, I think this is important to point out, you know, you, you're a, you're a sports parent like I am. We got tons of sports parents that listen. Um, it is one of one of the least expensive sports to get your kid in and have them develop, especially if they're playing on public courses. That's helpful compared to um, hockey, travel hockey, travel baseball. My kid's a competitive soccer player. Um, it, it, it is it, it is not what it was perceived as being and maybe was 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, I you know that. You know, the game of golf is a very public game. You know, 90% of the facilities in this country are public. And so the golf, the game of golf is consumed by the public. And, you know, to your point, Greg, yeah, the game is very affordable to pay, you know, 20 bucks uh, for a nine hole round or 30 to $50 for an 18 hole round. Uh, it, it's very affordable, especially on these golf courses. And not only that, you can jump on the subway and you can you know, your steps away from, from three of the golf courses, but public transit gets you to all five very quickly. So, uh, the games, like I said, very accessible, very affordable and, and extremely diverse. And we're tight for time, but I mentioned that out of the gate is probably you saw more kids playing because we looked around in 2020 and thought, okay, there's no proper baseball season. We don't know how fall sports are going to look. What can my child do? I, I don't want him or her just sitting at home and, and hanging out in the backyard. Um, you probably saw a huge rush and then a little bit of a hook um, and kind of an addiction for kids to end up playing. And boy, they're better off doing that than 20 other things. We sure did. You couldn't find a junior program that wasn't full anywhere within Ontario or Canada for that matter. Um, you know, the explosion of kids into the game was truly amazing. And yeah, it was due to a lack of, you know, choice to some degree. Um, but we know that a lot of them are going to stick with the game because they've tried it, they've played it, they've consumed it for the last two years and, and, you know, uh, they'll, they'll continue to do it this year and beyond. So you've got a deposition today, uh, that that's, that's, uh, public. When does, when does this move forward? What's sort of the timeline, uh, for a reduction of Dentonia or any other, any other scenario like it? So there's a vote on February 2nd by city council. The motions will be posed today in some way, shape or form through the councillors that participate uh, today. Um, and then, yeah, the, the vote happens on February 2nd. So for everybody out there that, you know, loves the game of golf and these courses and want to see them, you know, continue and evolve, then, you know, I would highly encourage you to reach out to your local councillor and just express your feelings. Craig Lockery from uh, Golf Ontario. Thanks for that. Good luck with the deposition today. I know that you know now that schools are open. You'll be you'll be swearing less at the hearing. I think that's a real positive for all concerned. You you included. You can't you can't take stuff back when you say it into a microphone. Trust me. We're heading into it with a good attitude. <laughs> that's for sure, Greg. Thanks for the time, Craig. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Craig Lockery from Golf Ontario. It's an interesting thing. Like again, it's not the easiest thing to suddenly take a huge swath of land in this city in Toronto and build a golf course. But you can maintain the five you have. And I know that they got creative putting tea times in and, and youth programs and whatnot. The problem with joining some private clubs is th that there just weren't tea times. You, you spend a whack of money to be at a private club, and then you can't get on when you need to. I mean, again, people work. I know some retirees play golf. Kids play golf. 
Um, teachers that have the summer off play golf. My dad played and taught and all that stuff. But if you're working a nine to five, it's hard. I don't know where you get your uh, where you get your nine holes in unless you can go really early or really late. So uh, it ends up being an issue. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We're back with a live show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto tomorrow morning, 530 to 9. Have yourself a great Tuesday.